Thanks, Nick. We'll keep that passage open and uh, we'll get looking at that in a second. My name's Hazy. Great to be uh, looking at God's Word with you. Let's ask God for his help. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you've given us this Word to teach us the truth. We so need you to teach us. And we need you to open our hearts uh, so that we'll believe what's true and, and love it and want it. And so protect me from saying anything that's not true and protect us from believing anything that's not true so that we might please you in everything. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, keep chapter 11 open. And I wonder how you or your friends would feel about... Is that ringing? Is it me? That's good? Oh, it's ringing. Is it me or is it... I'll just keep going. (laughs) That'll fix it. Uh, Yeah. I wonder how you or I wonder how your friends would feel about Paul the Apostle. He says in verse 11 that he loves them, the Christians in the city Corinth that he's writing this letter to. But in verse 4, it doesn't sound like he's celebrating their diversity. There's this other group of teachers that are claiming to preach about Jesus. But in verse 13, Paul slams them. He calls them false apostles. He says they're wrong. And he's actually writing this to change the Corinthians. Now there's some of the context. But that doesn't sound very loving, Paul. It doesn't sound very tolerant. Is that still a thing, tolerance? It was was all the rage when I was in high school. Going back a while now, but when I was in high school, you had to be tolerant. Tolerant meant that you didn't say anyone else was wrong. It was very postmodern. There's no such thing as right and wrong, just what's true for you. And so if you said to someone, no, that's wrong, that meant you were wrong. You were being intolerant. And so you were supposed to tolerate everything except intolerance. We didn't tolerate intolerance. If someone said, that's wrong, we didn't tolerate that. Now, we didn't get cancelled. You just kind of thought of, you know, they're a little bit of a bad person, a bit of a meanie pants. And so no one wanted to be called intolerant. And so tolerance was actually intolerant of anyone that didn't agree with it. If you thought, hang on for a second, though, but sometimes people are wrong. Well, I'm sorry, you were wrong about that. No one else can be wrong, but you were wrong. But I don't think people care about tolerance these days. I think it's more extreme than that now, more intolerant. Because today, it's not enough to tolerate. We need to celebrate. And if someone doesn't, they're not just a meanie pants. It's hateful, oppressive, damaging. They should be cancelled. You see, tolerance suggests that we might still disagree. In fact, we used to think that one of the most important things was to love people even when you disagreed. But today we're told, no, if you love someone, you won't disagree with them. You'll support them, which means affirm them, celebrate them, everything about them and who they are and their choices. Oh, hang on. Not everything, is it? Because there are some things that we don't celebrate, obviously. 
It's just sometimes a bit confusing to work out what those things are. What are the ones we celebrate? What are the ones we don't celebrate? Because it changes. I'm not quite sure who makes up which ones we celebrate. But if you do pay attention, it's not too confusing. In fact, there really is just a small list of things that it's super important to celebrate. And the big thing is, you really must not celebrate anybody who doesn't celebrate what's on that list. That's the really big thing not to celebrate. Now, do you see that that's actually very, very narrow and intolerant? It used to be we just tolerated everything pretty much equally. We'd never said anything was right and wrong, and that had its own problems. But now, it's here is a list of what is right, and if you don't agree with that, you're not just intolerant, you're evil. Now, tell me if this resonates. I've heard that um, today, many teenagers in particular, live in fear of being cancelled. Anxious about what they say, because it's not even enough just to be careful. Because the standards keep changing, anything that they've ever said or, or particularly posted online ever in their past could one day be problematic in the future, even if it seems fine today. And so the fear I've heard about, is this, is this, does this resonate for anyone? The fear that, um, is that once you get cancelled, there's no way back. We've got this incredibly strict set of moral standards that get policed relentlessly and punished permanently and there's no place for forgiveness. Now that's what happens to a society that takes parts of Christianity but forgets the heart of Christianity. Because at the very heart of the Christian message, the heart of the gospel, is forgiveness. And so the gospel has the power to set us free from that fear because it offers a way back. It offers forgiveness. And so you don't need to be celebrated by the world because, and this is where we finished at the end of last week, the end of last chapter, verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 18, you're celebrated by God. And we don't need to fear the changing moral standards of our world because we've got the unchanging moral standards of the God who made our world and therefore who knows what really is worth celebrating. And in the gospel, we find a God who really does love the people that he disagrees with. I think this is one reason that people who aren't Christians can sometimes struggle to understand what Christians are saying. Because sometimes we'll say that we disagree with something or that we think something is a sin, and people think we're saying we don't love them. But if you're new to these things, let me, let me first of all say welcome, it's so good you're here. It's important to realise that at the very heart of Christianity is a God who sees our sin, disagrees with it, and yet loves us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for us to bring us back to him. And so there's no contradiction between loving, even accepting someone, and yet disagreeing with them. That's exactly what God has done with us. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. It speaks of forgiveness. Now, you won't see it at first glance, so let me show you. 
In this verse, Paul describes his ministry to the Corinthians as bringing them into relationship with Christ. He uses the metaphor of a marriage to capture something of what it means to come to Jesus. Look at verse 2. I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Paul's ministry as a preacher was divine matchmaking. He spoke to them the message of the gospel as an invitation from God to enter into a relationship. And so when you become a Christian, you don't just believe a set of true things. Instead, by believing those true things, you enter into a relationship with a person who is still alive today. Now, the picture in verse 2 is like getting engaged, which was a bigger deal in their culture than it is in ours. Because as he's writing that, he's thinking about a future day When Jesus returns and we get to be with Jesus by faith and not by sight. And so we have a real relationship with Jesus now, but there's more to come. How exciting is that? But look again at verse 2. On that day, how can they possibly be pure virgins? So that I might present you as a pure virgin to him on that day. How can that be? Because they've got a past. Now, I'm not talking about sex. I'm talking about sin. Like you and me and everyone here, they've got a past of sin. And so how can they be pure when they meet Jesus? It's because the gospel that Paul preached them as this invitation into relationship is a message of forgiveness. And so um, flick back a couple of chapters to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. Paul says, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, bringing people back into relationship with him through Jesus, not counting people's sins against them. There it is, there's his message, forgiveness, not holding people's sins against them. And God has committed to us, to Paul, this message of reconciliation And so we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. God has asked Paul to tell people this message, which he's doing even tonight, actually, as I read these words to you. God wants you to know through Paul, though you have a past, it can be forgiven. Because verse 14, one died for all and therefore all died. The Bible says that the sins that we have done can be transferred to Jesus. And he died because that's the punishment for sin He died on the cross to pay the punishment so that we can be forgiven, not because of what we do, but trusting in what he did. Verse 21, God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, the innocent one, to be sin for us, he put our sin onto Jesus, made him sinful with our sin, so that in Jesus, in him, we might become the righteousness of God, clean, righteous, pure. There's the gospel of forgiveness. When you, become, when you come to Jesus, you become pure. And so that's how Jesus sees us now. And that is how it's possible that on that day, he might present us to Jesus as pure virgins. Do you know that that's why a bride wears the color white? 
I've heard it symbolises purity. I've heard of one woman who said to her fiancé, I don't, I don't want to wear white. It's a lie. I've got a past. I've not been pure. And the husband went out that night and bought her a white dress. And he gave it to her saying, the Bible says that Christ's death has taken away your sin. You are pure. That's how God sees you because that is how you are. And so that's how I see you. Our culture struggles to find room for forgiveness in its strict standards of right and wrong. But the gospel says you find it in Jesus. You find a God who does more than just tolerate us. He never celebrates sin, but he forgives it. And he makes us pure. And then he celebrates us as his treasured bride forever. And so, while we're on the topic... uh, Let me just say something about being a virgin. Because in our culture, among your classmates, in your workplace, people are more likely to be ashamed of being a virgin than they are of having a past. But we shouldn't be ashamed of what God celebrates. God's intention for marriage and sex is that both husband and wife will be a virgin on their wedding day. Not because it's some kind of gift that they give or take from each other, Not because it guarantees a better sex life or even a good marriage, it might not. Now, the research suggests that on average, people are more satisfied with their sex lives if they've had fewer sexual partners. But there's no guarantee of that. And it's not because if you're not a virgin, then um, you get stuck with just God's second best. It doesn't work like that. Now, there can be consequences, but God doesn't work like that. No, it's because of what marriage and sex are. They're not the only kind of love. There's lots of different kinds of love and it's not even the highest kind of love as we saw on Mother's Day. But if you do get married, it's to be, for you, the most precious relationship in your life. Like no other relationship in your life. Because when you get married, you devote yourself to each other like you will to no other person. Your marriage is something that just the two of you share and no one else. And so it's a good and wonderful thing if the most intimate physical act that two people can share is something that you both have only ever shared between the two of you. Now, I'm pressing into this because it actually helps us understand the metaphor in verse 2. It teaches us one other critical thing about what it means to be a Christian. It means you are to be devoted to Christ in a way that you are to nobody and nothing else. Because he's not just one Lord among many. He's the Lord. The only true God, the creator of the universe. Which means this is actually the most precious relationship in your entire life, even above your earthly marriage if you have one. And just as he will always remain faithful to you, you must remain faithful to him. Paul describes it in verse 3 as sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's the most important thing in your life. But Paul is writing this because 
their sincere devotion is in serious danger. Have a look at verse 3. I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The battleground for this danger is their minds. The danger that threatens their devotion to Christ is that their minds might be tricked, deceived into believing things that are wrong. And so if you're a Christian, or anybody actually, your, your mind matters. What you think matters. Because there's only one true Jesus and there's only one true gospel. That's what he, he gets at in verse 4. He points out there's a problem that they're so willing to receive a different one. Jesus is not just some concept that we can update to fit our culture whenever we like because he's real. And so we need to find out what he's really like. Now, if you were um, reading Galatians chapter 1, you'd find that the Galatian church was also in danger of believing a different gospel. Well, actually, Paul says there really isn't such a thing as a different gospel. There's just the one gospel, Galatians 1 verse 7. But they bring a message they claim is the gospel, but it's different. And Galatians is the most intense of all of Paul's letters because he says, if you believe that gospel, that message, you won't go to heaven. Galatians chapter 5, verse 2 and 4. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. The message in Galatia was that you needed both Jesus and good works to go to heaven. But the true gospel says that the way to be saved is Jesus alone. Faith in him alone, not your good works, not keeping God's laws. You're saved by trusting Christ. Some people had come to the Galatian Christians and said, yeah, 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 but you also need to be circumcised. That's God's law. If you're not circumcised, you won't go to heaven. And so they changed the gospel. It was no longer saved by trusting Christ alone. Now it was saved by Christ and what they did. And Paul says, no, if you add an and to that, you make it depend on you, not on Jesus. But Jesus is the saviour, not you. And so Galatians 5, 2, if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Verse 4, you've fallen away from grace. Now this is so against the culture of tolerance because it says it actually really matters what you believe. It could have eternal consequences. If you get it wrong, you could miss out on salvation. Not because God is a nitpicker, but because there really is only one way to be saved. Really, it's true that only Jesus saves. And therefore, there's only one gospel that saves. And if you change it, you lose it. Now, the whole letter of Galatians is written to convince them, don't buy it, don't accept that gospel. And so, let me gently say that any version of Christianity that says what you do is, is part of what saves you is false and it'll kill you. Lots of people out there say they follow Jesus. Many, many religions, in fact, claim that they love Jesus, but is it the true Jesus? Any view of Jesus, other than that he is the Saviour and the Lord, is wrong and won't save you. And so, 2 Corinthians 11, is that what's going on? 
Verse 4, if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. Is it, is it the Galatian thing? Well, it's possible. He does talk about a different gospel. But the letter of 2 Corinthians is very different to Galatians. The, the whole letter in Galatians is all about this one thing. It's like Paul's got a cannon pointed at it. But in 2 Corinthians, he talks about all sorts of things. He doesn't say very much at all about being saved by faith rather than works. And so I think probably it's a different, different gospel. Because the message of Christianity can be twisted and distorted in lots of different ways. Some of them are so far from the true gospel or they get such core things wrong that if you believe them, you won't be saved. But others get the core bits right and so you can be saved by that message but they're still twisted, deformed, which means that your relationship with Jesus will become twisted and deformed. Now, that could then mean that you become prone to certain sins or certain other errors and that could in fact one day mean you end up walking away from saving faith in Jesus. So in fact, it's still a danger. But even if that doesn't happen, Paul still cares. Paul doesn't just care that they make it across the line into heaven. He cares about their devotion to Jesus. It matters to him that their lives please Jesus, that they have a healthy relationship with Jesus, that they bring him glory. Sometimes you might hear people say, you know, is that a salvation issue? Is that one of those things that's critical because if we get that wrong, we won't be saved? I think there's something helpful about that. It is helpful to be able to say these things matter more than these things. But Paul doesn't just care about salvation issues because he's not just content to, to get them into heaven across the line. No, he wants far more than that for them. He cares about their devotion to Christ. And I wonder, do you care about that? For yourself, for us as a church, for your brothers and sisters in your growth group. So I think the error here is less serious than the one in Galatia, probably a different error, but it's still very serious. Now it seems like, as you read about the things he says, it seems like it's probably a gospel that presents uh, a, a, a gospel of power and impressiveness, as though God will bring us to a place where we, we, we have this power and we're, we're impressive, a bit like um, the prosperity gospel today, or... Um, Always, always dangerous to, to name denominations, isn't it? You might be able to think of churches that think um, God just wants us to, to have uh, lots of spiritual power in our lives and, and be impressive and successful. I've decided not to name the denomination. It's, it's possible, actually, as well, that their gospel doesn't think it's very important to fight sin. So um, 2 Corinthians twelve twenty one. You know, maybe they're saying, don't worry about what you do with your bodies. You're people of the Spirit now. But the Holy Spirit produces not worldly power and impressiveness, but holiness. He's the Holy Spirit. And so Galatians says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
the Corinthians aren't showing much of those things. And so verse 4 says they, they must be receiving a different spirit than the one that they received when they became Christians. What's going on there? Is, it like, is he saying like it's an evil spirit? Maybe. Or it could be talking about kind of like the spirit of the world, like an attitude. The word can mean that. Whatever he's saying, it's clear that it's not the work of the Holy Spirit. And so the Corinthians are listening to a gospel that's it's not a completely unsaving gospel, but it is a twisted gospel, and therefore it must be a different Jesus. Because their gospel values power and boasting and pride, whereas chapter 10 verse 1, Jesus was humble and gentle. Their gospel valued strength, but chapter 13 verse 4, Jesus was crucified in weakness. That's why if you look at the letters 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, all the way through Paul keeps coming back to the cross because how can you be drawn to a gospel of worldly power when we have a crucified Christ? But you know, we can actually um, do this too. We, we can have a picture in our minds of Jesus that's shaped by what we want him to be like rather than what's true. Sometimes people will say, um, oh, I don't think Jesus would... I think when we do that, there's a danger that we're just putting our ideas, our words, into the mouth of Jesus. Oftentimes, our ideas are actually just what our culture thinks because the culture shapes what we think. And so we end up with a a Jesus of our culture rather than the true Jesus. Maybe today it would be the tolerant Jesus who would never stop anyone doing anything. But if we want to please Jesus, we need to make sure we have the true Jesus, the true gospel, the real Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Now, I think seeing some of those things helps make sense of the differences between some of the different churches and denominations in Christianity. Because you start to see a few different types of differences, don't you? You see, there's a whole bunch of tiny little differences that don't matter at all. In fact, the Bible says they don't matter. Romans chapter 14 says that whether or not you eat meat or keep the Sabbath, it's not a big deal. But some differences are more serious. If you get those wrong, your Christian life can end up bent out of shape. And some are infinitely serious. Now, I reckon we assume that if someone was teaching us the wrong thing, bang, we'd spot it. But my growth group pointed out this week that verses 13 to 15 are very concerning. Have a look at this. Paul says these preachers that the Corinthians are gravitating towards are masters of disguise. Their deceptions are seductive and hard to spot. He says, for such people, the false teachers, are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then, if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. And so Paul says, first of all, that these teachers are false. What they teach is not the truth, but lies. But they make it look like the truth. They pretend to be apostles of Christ. And so he calls them servants of Satan. That's pretty intense, isn't it? Because they're doing what Satan has been doing since the very beginning. Satan's real. Verse 3, he's cunning. 
And ever since the Garden of Eden, Satan has been at work in the world, not by hiding in bushes and, and jumping out to scare people at night. No, he's, he's at work in the messages and the ideas and the value systems that are communicated in our world to get people to believe things that are false. Things that might make it harder for them to believe in the gospel. Things that might twist their relationship with Jesus. And so if you want to be on your guard, what is it that you should look out for? Something dark and scary and intense? Well, maybe that could be him. But do you know what it's more likely that the work of Satan will look like? Look at verse 14. What's it more likely that the work of Satan will look like? Good. He masquerades as an angel of light. This is a really important thing to get. Satan knows that a lie is more persuasive if it contains an element of truth. If it's, if it's just completely wrong, it's too easy to spot. And so down through the history of the church, all the, the heresies and the false teachings, they're always built on something that's true. And it's the same with the philosophies of the world. Satan will coat his lie in as much chocolatey truth as it takes to get you to swallow it. But even more than that, you know, if you want to really get someone, don't just get them to think it's true, make them think it's good. You see, if Satan was to tempt you today, what would it look like? Maybe he'd take some obviously bad sin and hold it under your nose and say, smell that? Mmm, smells tasty, doesn't it? If he can get you to sin that way, why not? But he knows that he'll actually get a deeper hold on you if he can convince you that what he's saying isn't sin at all. In fact, if he can make you think that what he's saying or the messages that, that are being communicated will put you on the side of what's true and good and right, then he's really got you. Look at verse 15. The people bringing the lies will seem like servants of righteousness. That's terrifying, isn't it? That's what makes this deception so seductive. We desperately, we desperately need to be, I'll teach you a word, maybe you already know it, in fact we sang it just before, discerning. You know what the word discerning means? It means to pay attention to the things you hear and check that they're right, or check if they're right or wrong. Now, I think our culture says we should have an open mind. And if that means we should listen respectfully and seek to understand and, and be compassionate and empathetic, then absolutely. As long as it doesn't mean that we have to accept, agree with, believe what they say. If that's what it means, then there's something far more important than an open mind and that's a discerning mind. And so here is what I think is the big implication of this passage. Let's put it up on the screen. There we go. The big implication is that we need spiritual discernment. There's a serious danger to our sincere devotion from seductive deception. And so we need to be spiritually discerning. And I think that's especially true. In fact, this passage suggests that it's especially true when it comes to Christian teachers. These false teachers in Corinth, they claimed to be apostles of Christ, verse 13. 
And so we need to be discerning of those who claim to be teaching about Jesus. Whether they're standing where I'm standing right now, or in a different church, or it's a book, maybe even more especially on YouTube or in a podcast. Today I looked up the, um, the charts in the Apple Podcast app under the Religion and Spirituality section. Almost every single one of them, in my judgment as I read the Bible, is a false teacher. Probably why it's popular, although you, know, you can't judge it by that. So be discerning when it comes to what Christian teachers are saying, but be discerning as well when it comes to the messages from our culture in shows and songs and, of course, on socials. And can I suggest what I think discernment looks like for most people today? I don't know if people might not be conscious of this, but I think what goes on, you can tell me over dinner if you think I got this wrong, but I think what goes on is people ask, how does this make me feel? If the tone, the picture, the font, the words, if it makes me feel good, then it must be good. But if it makes me feel uncomfortable, then that means it's not safe, it's wrong, it's dangerous. But do you see the problem with that? Do you see why Satan might love that approach to discernment? It's like giving him a free hit. Because he's very happy to tell you things that will make you feel good. He doesn't care if you're healthy, successful, wealthy, with great skin, great self-esteem. He'll give you all those things if he can get you to believe something that will hurt or destroy your relationship with Jesus. Let me give you an example I saw today. This might be controversial. I'm interested to see your thoughts. I saw this at Erin Affair today in the toilets. I didn't know, I didn't know how they knew I was coming. You are loved. You are enough. You are worthy. You are beautiful. You are irreplaceable. Me? That's very kind of them. No, it's on the mirror, obviously. Um, Now, there's so much in that. That's true, isn't there? But because I've been thinking about this all day today, I thought, do you know what? What would happen to a person if they said that to themselves in the mirror every day? Would they think they need Jesus to save them? You are enough. You are worthy. What effect would it have on my prayer life? Do I need God? I'm enough. Who does it put in the center of my life? Me. It's not, as the Bible would say, God first, others second, then me. And so it's got so much that's true, but it's cut them all off from the God that makes them true. I'm sure there'll be people who disagree, but even if this isn't a perfect example, this is the kind of thing that Satan does. He'll feed lots of little truths that'll stop a person grabbing hold of the big truth that they really need. And so just because it makes someone feel good doesn't mean it's actually good for them. doesn't mean it's actually what they they really most need. And so, brothers and sisters, don't base your discernment on whether something makes you feel good. We need to learn to discern what really is true. And that's the problem Paul was noticing in the Corinthians. 
they actually were being discerning in a way, they were just coming to the wrong conclusions. You see, they were tolerant of all the wrong stuff and they had very little tolerance for the right stuff. Now, I'm using the word tolerance a bit differently here to what I did at the beginning. I'm not talking about what you let other people do, but what you accept into yourself. And so, you see, the the Corinthians didn't have much tolerance when it came to Paul. And so three times in this passage, he he asked them to put up with him, to tolerate him. He asked them twice in verse 1 and then once in verse 16. And at one level, what he means is, bear with me, tolerate what I'm writing to you now. But deeper than that, it's actually about their whole relationship to Paul. They've got very little patience for him. And that's very scary because Paul is the one who brought them to Jesus and has the truth about Jesus. And so they don't tolerate the true apostle, but they do tolerate the false teachers. Look at verse 4, you see the word again. If someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a spirit, different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it, you tolerate it easily enough. In verse 20, they even tolerate the false teachers taking advantage of them. Look for the word again, put up with. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit we were too weak for that. Now, what's going on there? Is that really what the false teachers were like? They were different to Paul, verse 21. He says, to my shame, I admit I was too weak for that. Bit of sarcasm there. Because what were the false teachers doing? They were acting like strong, powerful leaders. Today they'd be on a podcast pumping their new book. It'd be their 15th book in three years. And they'd have an amazing posture, puffed up chest, designer jacket. They'd start the episode boasting about their daily ritual where they're up at 5am. They never run less than 20 kilometres a day. Have you seen that video? And, and they're so productive that they're literally just stacking up days within days. Have you seen that guy? By, by, um, I'm up at six. By 12, I've, I've done one day. By six at night, that's day two. By midnight, that's day three. The end of a week, that's 21 days. At the end of a month, you're toast. (laughs) Add that up over a year, I'm going to kick your butt. He literally says that, and I think he's serious. There's a great parody. He he says, um, well, I do do 21 days in one day. Add that up, you're a muffin. Anyway, you got to see it. The culture in Corinth... Was, was so much like our world today, actually. They valued what looked strong and powerful and impressive, and these false teachers looked like that. And so um, in verse 5, Paul calls them, ironically, super apostles. That's how they're acting, like they're so good. And so these Corinthians loved that their leaders pushed them around. Look how powerful our leaders are. They just, they just push us wherever they like. They loved that their leaders took their money. They've got to be good if they cost so much money. It's just like today's celebrities who who know they've made it when their concert ticket sells on eBay for thousands of dollars or they can charge you $20,000 to hang out with them for an hour. These so-called Christian leaders are on the take. Chapter 2, verse 17, Paul says, he's not like so many who peddle the word of God for a profit. And so these false teachers, they're in it for themselves to make money. They really are chasing what many think religious leaders are after. The bottom line for them is the bottom line. And the Corinthians, they lap it up. Because in the eyes of their culture, it's wise. It works. 
And so no wonder Paul is so worried about them. They're so shaped by their culture that their radar for discernment is off. It's like the antivirus software of their mind has been infiltrated by the viruses that it's supposed to be stopping and now it's downloading more viruses and locking up whenever the computer doctor, whatever it's called, comes to try to fix it. And so that's why it's not enough just to say be discerning, think critically, because that's what the Corinthians were doing. They were just applying the wrong standards, the standards of their culture, instead of the standards of God's truth. Their, their taste buds were out of whack. Have you ever met someone who, who says they quit sugar? I haven't met anyone that's quit sugar, but I've met lots of people who say they have, and they are so annoying, are they not? You see them like eating a raw onion. You're like, that is disgusting. Oh no, you think it's disgusting because your taste buds are all messed up by sugar. Once you quit sugar, everything tastes like chocolate. (laughs) Yeah, right. Apparently it's true. Apparently your taste buds do reset. You get a whole new world of flavours. I wouldn't know. You've got to go about 10 days. I can't go 10 minutes, right? So the Corinthians were like a high school kid who lives on nothing but Coca-Cola and donuts. That's why they were drawn to these super apostles. Their their messed up tolerance shows that their taste buds for truth were too much like their culture. And so in these chapters, what you'll see Paul doing is resetting their taste buds. He takes what the Corinthians value and he shows that it's not like Jesus at all. And so verses 5 to 12, he takes the parts of his ministry to them that they look down on and he tries to help them see its true goodness. He says, verse 5, I'm not inferior to these super apostles. Now, he hates to talk like this, right? Verse 1, he calls it foolishness. But he has to. He's got to find a way to win them back to the truth. And so he addresses the two criticisms. Number 1, verse 6, they say he's not an impressive speaker. They value what's impressive. But Paul says, no, I've got what matters far more. I've got knowledge. I've got the truth about God. That's what really matters. And Paul says he's made his knowledge perfectly clear. In fact, that might even be the reason that his public speaking doesn't impress them. Because he's not trying to use all this flowery language. His goal is just to make it as clear as he can. Because Paul knows that's where the power lies. It's God who saves people. It's God who grows people through the knowledge of God, which means you don't need to have impressive gifts to lead people to Jesus and, and help people grow as Christians. Because the way God does that is through simple words that help people understand the knowledge of God. As they understand it, God works. And so the power is not in flashy speeches, it's in plain speech. Simple words that make the knowledge of God clear. And so that's why Paul does what he does in this chapter. He wants to help them taste the goodness of it. I might be untrained as a speaker, he says, but I do have knowledge And we've made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Criticism number two to finish. Verses 7 to 12, he doesn't charge any money, they say. How good is is the doctor that can't get anyone to pay him, you know? But Paul says, was it as... Actually, I love it when doctors don't charge you. Does that ever happen to you? Anyway. No charge. Good country we live in. Anyway, Paul says... um, Paul says, was it a sin for me to lower myself, to elevate you by preaching the gospel free of charge? In other words, was I sinning when I lived like Jesus? Because you remember Jesus lowered himself to the earth to lift you up to heaven. Should I not have done that? 
In Paul's mind, the gospel is a message of forgiveness that God gives away for free. And so how can it be bad to give the gospel away for free? And Paul, uh, verse 12, this will also mean that the false apostles can't say, we're just like Paul, because he knows they're in it for the money and the prestige, and so he, he cuts off their opportunity to pretend to be like him. And so let me apply this to us just for a second. Beware of any church or preacher that's in it for profit or self-promotion. You know, if their big smiling face is on the front cover of the new book, if they show up on preachers and sneakers. Do you know about that Instagram? Um, A guy called uh, Ben Kirby noticed that a lot of um, so-called pastors and preachers were wearing some pretty nice clothes and sneakers. And so he started an Instagram account where he just took a photo of the or a screenshot of the preacher next to then um, an online shop selling the shoes. And I think Paul would say, if your preacher is wearing one... These are from um, Aaron Affair. Paul would say... Um, <laughs> I think Paul would say, if you see a preacher wearing $1,000 shoes, run away from them as fast as your Birkenkrocks will carry you. It's crazy that people in our world today can still get away with it. They get away with calling themselves pastors while they fly around in private jets and and have mansions and people put up with it for the exact same reason the Corinthians did. It looks impressive and therefore they think God must be in it. Our culture today is so similar in so many ways. We value self-promotion, self-esteem, self-care, self-love, self, self, self. But it's the opposite of Jesus, isn't it? Who poured himself out for the sake of others. And so if you make choices that lead you to poverty so that others will be spiritually rich, the world will think you're crazy, but your actions will fit the gospel just like Paul's did. That's quite a change that he went through from killing Christians, isn't it? And so what's the solution to all this? It's to be spiritually discerning. It's to train our taste buds to love what's really true. And so how do you do that? Well, you've got to go back to the Bible. You've got to go back to the true Jesus, to Paul and the other true apostles, and you've got to get to know it really well. Because the better you know the true Jesus, the easier it is to spot the fakes. But not just know it. Let it reshape your taste buds. When there's something in the Bible that doesn't sit right with you, well, maybe you've misunderstood it, but maybe you found an area where your taste buds are out of whack. If the Bible's from God, we should expect it to go against the grain of our sin and therefore to go against the grain of our culture and its values. That's what makes it so helpful. And so instead of judging the Bible by the standards of the world, judge the standards of the world by the Bible. Let your taste buds be recalibrated by the true Word of God, brought by the true apostles of the true Jesus who was crucified. And so your sincere devotion is in danger, serious danger, from seductive deception but actually your sincere devotion to christ will also help you be spiritually discerning the more clearly you see him the more you know him the more you love him the more that you'll smell a fake a mile away and so cultivate sincere devotion in your life the goal of christianity is not to know dot points on a syllabus it's not to be gifted or um, have achievements for him No, 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 the goal of Christianity is Jesus. To know him, to love him, and to enjoy your relationship with him. And so the band will come up because singing is one gift that God has given us to help us grow in that, to help us take these truths deep 
not just into our minds, but into our hearts to recalibrate our loves, our taste buds. And so when the band comes up, I'll pray and then we'll sing. Take a moment, reflect. Where do your taste buds need to be recalibrated? Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus is so much better than any of the empty claims that we hear on this earth. And we thank you that he brings a message of forgiveness, that he brings us into relationship with the true and living God. Please help us to be spiritually discerning and to spot the seductive deceptions so that nothing will hinder our sincere devotion to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.